In series four of our podcast, we'll be exploring the question, why do good people follow bad leaders? Why is poor leadership so endemic? What is it about power dynamics that means that sometimes the poorest leaders rise so high? And finally, why do organizations still employ people who display dark triad traits? It's such a pleasure to be talking to Rima Shakir in this fourth series of podcasts. Rima is an adjunct professor at Stern Business School in New York. She teaches at Wharton, and she also teaches on the executive doctorate program at the University of Pennsylvania. She's researched, talked, and written widely about the impact of diversity, equity, and inclusion on business and on innovation. She's also written about the lived experience of being a minority woman in business and academia. And finally, we're hugely honoured that she's also an associate at Thompson Harrison. So welcome, Rima, to this podcast. Thank you, Tracy. I'm thrilled to be having this conversation with you. I was thinking back, Rima, to when we first met, I think it was 2018 um, in Lisbon, when we worked together on that fabulous leadership program for um, the Ariane de Rothschild scholars. And I remember then thinking that you had uh, an amazing way of creating a sense of belonging. And the scholars had such different backgrounds from such different corners of the world. And I wonder if I could begin by asking you, you know, your sort of natural interest in, in what it's, you know, in, in being a minority woman. <laughs> was there a spark or was there a moment when you thought, actually, you know, I, I'm going to research this, bring this into my work, be an advocate, be an activist? So my whole life, I think I've been living in between languages, in between cultures, in between countries. And who belongs in a country can often prove a highly provocative and contested political question. And I think in philosophical terms, if we can get a little bit philosophical, one of the most important functions of any liberal democratic nation state is to integrate the often, I think, conflicting interests of this persons into a single collective decision-making body, which is creating that lovely first-person plural. And for this to happen, each must have a commonly held sense of legitimately belonging together towards some form of common future. So that's the basis of where this spark started. And it really hit home, and I think was very blatant for me right after 9-11, where um, I think that forever changed the reality for people who look like me. And I think there's been a growing fragility of all belonging, not only after 9-11, but since the 2016 elections, then add on to that the twin pandemics of racism with the Floyd murders and COVID. So I think the threads of belonging across have been getting frayed. And so more and more, I started thinking about how can I start looking at that and what what some are, what are some of the practices bringing that thread all that theory to the ground and how does that look like how does that look like embodied in organizations and in businesses and in institutions fantastic well if i could take that fragility you talk about and think about think about organizations because that both of us work on these matters within organizations. And actually, this fourth series of podcasts, we originally thought we should focus a little bit on the on the dark side of leadership. So I wonder, I wonder whether you've encountered, you know, toxic environments um, where people 
I mean, you even um, felt unheard, felt excluded. And whether, you know, in your experience, you know, there are there are hallmarks of such places and the people who lead them as well. And maybe you could spend a moment or two reflecting on your your lived experience of those kinds of places. Let's just start by saying that I think belonging, you know, belonging is designed out of systems. So there needs to be an intentionality in designing it back in. And with that being said, I have worked in organizations where the culture was very exclusionary and not only exclusionary, but extremely punitive. Um, and as I look back at that, when I'm thinking about your question, and if we're thinking about design and trying to bring it to the from the design aspect, I recall in that workplace, even the way the building inside was designed emphasized a culture of surveillance and exclusion. And the building, um, Tracy, was designed in a circular way where if you actually look down, you can literally see what every single employee was doing. And it re- it really resembled um, Foucault, Michel Foucault's Panopticon, where when he talks about how prisons were designed with the watchtower being in the middle, where inmates felt that they were constantly being surveilled and watched, even when there was no guard there. And that's the feeling that I had, where you internalize that feeling of exclusion and being constantly ha- having to to be turned on and feeling that you're watched. And if you make a mix, misstep, somehow you'll be called out for it. So I have worked in, um, in, in those sorts of places. Um, another thing that stood out in that environment, in that organization was how people even sit when in lunch areas, you have folks from specific racial and ethnic backgrounds that were having lunch together, or um, it was extremely hierarchical. So people with a certain classification within the organizations would have lunch first, actually, and ones who are more junior would actually hold back and not even enter the lunchroom. So yes, um, and, and and in these kinds of works and work environments, you have really leaders who whose relationships with their employees, it was extremely transactional. It wasn't interactional. And I think that's where, that's where that belonging piece was missing and trust was eroded. Um, and where the leaders of that organization really missed an opportunity to create a sense of, of, of shared value. Yeah, that's fascinating. That kind of diminished humanity in a way. Um, but your point about it being designed in, it being intentional. I mean, there is, of course, so much unintentional (laughs) exclusion as well that is perhaps not designed in, but emerges out of a lack of of consciousness or awareness or actually just imagine human imagination where there are good leaders in good places trying to do trying to do their best, but nonetheless underestimating what it feels like to be in a minority. And I wonder, again, just drawing on your work about the lived experience, whether you could talk a little bit about about those sorts of environments that are not intentionally toxic. Mm, mm, mm. Absolutely. Um, I think the key word, Tracy, there is of leaders not being conscious, not having that awareness, even though they're good intentioned and they would, you know, the term they would use about themselves, well, I'm a good person, right? But then really taking moments to pause and to first, as a leader, think about your own sense of belonging. When was it that you felt excluded 
were included. And how did that feel? Where did it resonate in your body? Because, you know, belonging is a feeling. That's why we always use a sense with it. It actually physically hits you. And think about that moment. And then think about what were the elements that were there when I felt that I belong, so I can recreate that as a leader. And some of the things I've seen well-intentioned people do is, for example, not really embodying the organization's values. And when I say embodying the organization's values is not sitting in your office, you know, actually walking around, walking around the spaces on talking to people, talking to people as, as junior as your coffee vendor to, and as senior as, as a board member and creating those spaces for conversation and constantly reaffirming what is it that we stand for as an organization and seeing where your employee, employees are at and listening you know, inclusive listening to all voices from different departments. There was a VP in an organization that I was um, involved in back in the day, and it was remarkable. His name is Jason. And all he did was walk around the campus and walk and talk to people. I had never seen somebody do that. For me, I was, you know, coming from the other organization I talked to you about, I was used to seeing, you know, the suit and boot and, you know, you had to put in an, 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 a, you know, a request to talk to a leader. This guy was out there just talking. And he said, he says, my ear to the ground. He's like, I can circumvent and I can foresee trouble that might be, that might be brewing up. I can hear what my employees needs are and be able to connect with them on that level. So I think that's an important piece. Sharing personal stories. I think there's so much value in, in leaders sharing their own vulnerabilities. People think that, that trust you know, you have to trust to become vulnerable. Actually, it's the other way around. Share your vulnerabilities and then people will trust you. People will be open up to sharing their own experiences. So they're very simple things. It could be a, as, as, as simple as creating one hour, like, um, like an hour a week where people like, what's on your mind? Having a what's on your mind with your employees. So the simple things, it's the simple things, Tracy, that matter. I love that. I think you're right, Rima. It is simple things, small things. And I like your insistent, absolutely right, right insistence that the belongings are a feeling. Whereas I think at its worst, the, the focus on diversity inclusion ends up being a kind of numbers game, you know, and almost it's performative. And I mean, I'd be really interested in asking someone as, as thoughtful as you about how we frame these things, how the sort of language we use, because absolutely up until now, we've We've been using the word belonging, but, um, you know, there are all those words, diversity, inclusion, equity, and so on. It's a minefield. I think people get nervous about language. They're frightened of using the wrong language as well. And I wonder what your thoughts are at this point of the language we use and how we frame these issues and, and could we be doing better? I'm always cautious, Tracy, in using terms like diversity and inclusion, because the question I, I started asking myself was when I really thought about it, right, when I really gave it the time to think about it was diverse as opposed to what exactly? Um, it's usually used to mean not white. And I thought, okay, well, why, why are we making white the norm? Isn't that also singling that out? Everyone else is, is every, so white is the norm and everybody else is diverse. So I have a very complicated relationship with diversity. And I think the same goes for inclusion. What people many times do not realize that de facto, when you make the decision to include an X number of people, you're also making a decision to exclude. 
It's just that's just what it happens, whether people realize that or not. And with belonging, however, I think if it's done right, it has the power because this is something extremely tribal. This this precedes, this is from the start of humanity. This desire, the need to belong has always been there. So it precedes all the terms. It precedes all the isms. And it has the power to transcend some of the boundaries in the sense that, for example, there was a survey that was done after the 2016 elections in the USA in, in a specific organization. And they asked people who felt most alienated within that organization or that company. And it was black women and conservative, conservative white males. And, and that shouldn't be the case. No one should feel excluded from these two camps. It's not right. So belonging, if done right, can enhance, I think, many elements within a business. I mean, the studies show that if there's a sense of belonging, employees are three times more likely to look forward to coming to work. And they're three times more likely to say that their workplace is fun. Um, I think this was a Harvard study from the Harvard Business Review. And they're nine times more likely to believe that people are treated fairly regardless of their race. And they're five times more likely to want to stay at their company for a long time. So the data backs this up. The data, but I would be cautious. And, and I think the, the, the bottom line of all this, Tracy, is that people want to feel heard. They want to be seen. And that's really it. I totally agree with you. I had a conversation last week, I think, with a black chief executive of a tech company. And he said, I don't want to be included. You know, I want to, I want to change things. I want to, I don't want to be included in someone else's game. And I think there is, you know, we do need to be mindful of this language. As you say, I mean, we've just been, as you know, we've just been doing research for our book, um, The Social Brain with Robin Dunbar, who's an evolutionary psychologist. And this human need to belong, to be part of small groups, to be able to change the conversation, to change the story, it doesn't change. It's 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 been there for you know thousands and thousands of years, and I think all of us know that feeling. I mean, as small children, of being excluded in the playground or left out, and it's a place of no possibility. I think you're right as well about there's a lot of fear because if you include some people. You know, there's only so much time in the day for relationships. There are only so many places around the table. Other people get excluded, whereas belonging is for everybody. Um, people who've been there, you know, forever, new recruits, young, old or whatever. But if I could stay a minute on that fear and, you know, the backlash that We've been reading in the newspapers, we've probably been experiencing ourselves, you know, in the States, in the UK, in, in many different places around, you know, the, you know, the reaction to woke, you know, to not wanting to do sort of unconscious bias training, the sort of feeling that enough already, you know, we've come up far enough with this and the sort of sense of pushback, which is fueled by fear. And I, I wonder... If you have any thoughts about that, Rima, mm, mm, mm. I think um, we see this we we see this trend emerge with quite a few companies. I mean, recently, I think Netflix has been undergoing a huge um, woke backlash. Um, there was a significant drop in their subscribers, so that's that's an interesting data point right there. And I think. Anything done in an extreme, in extreme Tracy, when we think about woke and what people aren't being allowed to express as opposed to being able to dissent respectfully 
anything done in extreme will generate an equally extreme reaction in the opposite direction. And to circumvent this, there needs to be more spaces for authentic dialogue where people do not fear retribution or getting canceled by saying the wrong thing. People make mistakes and will continue to make mistakes, different reasons, lack of awareness, what have you. And I think these should be moments for actually calling in rather than calling out. Um, respectful dissent, Tracy, is the hallmark of an advanced civilization. And I think we need to really re- rethink where we're at and how we can build that back in to our systems. I like that calling in rather than calling out, you know, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, I think, you know, not not to be too depressed. I mean, you, you've already talked about some of the simple things that you see around the place and, you know, that notion of respectful dissent. I mean, are there other, I mean, we work with lots of companies that are doing really good work and really trying and struggling and being honest and not always getting it right, as you say. I mean, are there any other um, pieces of inspiration that, that you could give to those groups of good people trying to think about how can we do this better? Tracy, do I have your permission to talk about Thompson Harrison? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> would, I be, would I be considered biased? Would I be considered biased? Because I really think it was a beautiful illumination of belonging done in 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 a, in, in a fantastic way. And I, I really want to share this. Um, so to our listeners, just to give you some background, I was last year invited to become an associate with Thompson Harrison and belonging really begins with an invitation into a space and how one is invited matters a lot. Um, whether the invitation, you know, to your, your, to, to you comes personally from a friend anonymously as a notice in a hallway bulletin board, the invitation is the first opportunity to create a moment of belonging. And the team at Thompson Harrison did this in such a beautiful way. Um, they sent an email asking me, what are, what are some of the things I care about in my own work? And these are the things that we care about. Where can we find some alignment so we can work together? That, first of all, I've never been invited in that way to work in an organization where they were asking my input and what did I care about? What is my footprint? And how can I bring that and align that with their work? That was a moment for me. And I thought, wow, I don't ever want to work with anybody else again that doesn't practice this. It was just so refreshing. And it changed how I felt about how I get invited into spaces and then followed up with that. I mean, even though the, these folks are in in, um, in England and I'm in, in, in America, I got a beautiful bouquet of flowers and a, and a wonderful little notebook that has the Thompson Harrison logo. I mean, these are little things, little things this group of fantastic human beings invested in that made me feel that I was an equal and I could voice what are some of the things I cared about. And it was just a lovely, lovely invitation, Tracy. And I hope I'm not embarrassing you by, by, you know, going on and on, but it was a moment. It was a moment that changed my outlook. Like, Hey, like we can really do better on this. And that's something I adopted. And I thought, okay, I need to be very intentional in how I even invite people into spaces. Well, that is that. That's so nice of you, even to remember that. <laughs> I mean, I think we do think quite carefully about about tone. I think we feel, think quite carefully about beginnings, and I think you know there are lots of organisations that have wonderful processes for induction and so on. But it often is, you know, this is us, the organisation. This is you. How can you flex to kind of 
you know, adapt yourself to who we are. And I think it's a rare organization that says, who are you? Tell us your story. And we're interested in how you're going to change our story, how we're going to learn from you. You may be 22. It may be your first job. You may be, you know, you may be, I don't know, you, you may be anyone, but we have hired you for a very particular reason. We know why we've hired you. You're not just a number. You are going to change our story. And we're curious how that's going to happen. And I think, you know, there are wonderful learning organizations um, and, you know, there are people that do this, but I still think it's quite rare. I think, you know, I could talk to you forever, Rima, but I want to, you know, in the end, why do we need diversity? I mean, as you say, it's the hallmark and in it absolutely is of civilized society, of civilized groups of people. But also we need diversity for things like performance and innovation. And, you know, we need different ways of thinking, different ways of looking at the world. And I wonder, you know, what what you would say about that, because I think too often we stop short when we say we want diversity and we sort of say, you know, well, we need more women in leadership or we but we don't do the why and well enough and beautifully enough and convincingly enough. And I just as a final question, I'd like you to to tell me tell me how you think about the why. Mm, mm. I think um, the why, the basic human need, um, and instinct that as humans we want to belong to groups that are defined by a clear purpose and understanding to tribes, and this tribal connection has been largely, I think, lost in modern society, but is it's, I think it's starting to regain its place and organizations and companies in the business world are realizing that, that this is key to our actually psychological um, survival. And you see a lot of for-profit brands identifying this opportunity and thinking beyond customers, fans, followers. And I think the next frontier for great brands is stepping into the cultural need, right? The cultural need um, and market opportunity for deeper real world person to person connection. And as far as the why, it makes products better. If we're talking in business terms and there's data that backs this. Um, if you look at even if I, if I hold my, my cell phone up, the I, this is an iPhone. It's made, and there's a, there's a study about this that the people, the folks who designed this, didn't account that women had smaller hands than men. So they were extremely large for 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 women's hands. And say if that engineer, that designer, they had included a, a you know a, like somebody who does identify as a female in the in the design process, we would have had probably a different iPhone. These simple things like this, simple things like enter into my car. There's never a place where I can hang my purse. And I've been thinking about that. Couldn't they just put a little hook somewhere where I can actually hang my purse? And perhaps if a woman was involved in the design process of that car, of that Tesla, of whatever, there would have been a hook. So it creates better product. It creates better innovation when you're getting a whole host of different diverse lens on what you're trying to do, be it a product, a service, an educational institution. It just makes, it enhances all that, right? It enhances all that. Um, now, there's some pushback on this. There's some pushback in saying, well, it's become a bunch of no like numbers. And I would say, yes, but it's very hard to get buy-in from leaders when you don't have hard data, 
because leaders may question the validity of qualitative results. So if we just tell them anecdotal stories of how wonderful this is, how the, you know, this person felt included, how this person from this background, there's all that's all right, but how does this impact my bottom line? And I think this is where the numbers matter and keeping track of that matters. This is especially true when you're working on something like belonging in the workplace and you're specifically interested in the experience of small groups of employees, what have you. So I do believe that it, it should be a mixed, a mixed approach where the anecdotes and stories, of course, you know, for some, that's what works for other people who, who want to see the numbers. We need to keep track of these things to show them that it actually impacts your bottom line and the data backs this, that it's actually good economics. And I think there's a, a recent article. I think I'm not sure if it's in the New York Times where they're seeing this trend emerge in business schools where even a school like Wharton has now designed a specific MBA focused on DEI. Half of Yale's School of Management's curriculum is focused on ESG. So you're seeing, and, and you know, the trends start within these academic institutions. It's very telling that the business world slowly is going to adapt and get on that bandwagon, Tracy. So... I think, you know, that's powerful, Rima. And and the business world isn't going to get on that bandwagon if it isn't, as you say. In the end, it's good business. It's civilized. And and, and all the things, I, I know you made a bid to design the inside of a Tesla so you can put the hook in it and whatever, but it's also enjoyable. It's creative. And I think you're focused on numbers. Um, you know, so often when we think about our brains, we're thinking about the cognitive side, the analytical, the, you know, the measurable. I think, does Simon Sinek call them, you know, our lopsided metrics? And yet, you know, the building of trust, the human to human that you've talked about so beautifully, all those things absolutely create the environments within which, you know, people thrive, they feel bold enough to innovate, they can collaborate together across their difference. And I think the most uh, enlightened companies are really starting, and as you say, the business schools as well, starting to put much more focus and effort into what we've been talking about so delightfully together today. Rima, I thank you so much. It's such a shame that you're in America and we're over here, but we, 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 you know, we love working with you. And I also love the, the wise and human and measured way you think about these things. For listeners, we will put a connection to Rima's work on, on the show notes and also to the work that we've been doing at Thompson Harrison in this area. And uh, I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. Thank you so much, Rima. We hope you'll join us for our next one. Thank you, Tracy, and thank you for illuminating the particularities of what it means to be human. Thank you so much. Thank you.